everybody, welcome to episode 37 of Literary Disco, the Hot for Teacher live episode. <laughs> Woo! Woo! We're here at the Barnes & Noble at The Grove in Los Angeles, California, and for the first time ever, we're recording in front of a live studio audience. Today, we will begin with a bookshelf revisit, the segment in which Todd, Julia, and I pull something down from our bookshelves to discuss, and then Todd will perform his dreaded poet voice for you all. And then we will be joined on stage by author Ivy Pakoda, and we'll talk to Ivy about her brand new book, Visitation Street. And then, as is tradition on the disco, we've had Ivy select a book for us to read and discuss. And little did we know that she would choose for our inaugural live show, the dirtiest book in literary disco history. Is this, is this our first book with active sodomy? Yes. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Perfect. Is it? No, I don't think it is. No? Uh, the book is Tampa by Alyssa Nutting. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, everybody. Yeah! Thanks for Kevin, everyone. Now, um, we're going to do our little bookshelf revisit, but we're, we're going to do a poet voice competition. So whoever, whoever wins in the audience is going to get a free frosted brownie. And that's not a euphemism from Tampa. That's an actual... That's real. It's an actual frosted brownie. Well, either one. You uh, pick. Yeah. Well, no. No. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I don't either. Don't Google frosted brownie from your work computers. So we also know that um, we, I want to speak for a moment to the dates in the audience who have never listened to a podcast or the sisters or the brothers or whatever. We know you're out there. We know you're about 50% of the audience. So we're going to explain everything we do before we do it. Um, and I hope you guys are ready to have a good time because we're so excited and happy to be here. We are indeed. All right. So bookshelf revisit. Bookshelf Revisit. So the Bookshelf Revisit is usually, because uh, we record at our homes and we're over uh, you know, Skype traditionally. And so we, we always just pull one book. Sometimes we do a bookshelf roulette where we get numbers from our audience and randomly select a, a book from our bookshelf. And then we have to defend why we own it. But this time we're going to... Um, and frequently, time, I think most of the time we have not read the books that we pull yeah, from our shelves. No, no, that's you, Todd. You, right. Todd's always pulling down a book. He's like, this is a piece of crap. I've never read it, but <laughs> they wanted me to review it. Um, no, so who wants to go first? I'll start? I, go ahead. All right, so... Uh, who wants to go first? Me? 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 Anybody? <laughs> so, How about Ryder? For my bookshelf revisit, I thought in, uh, in light of the recent conviction of Private Manning, it would be good to pick one of my favorite books of all time, um, which I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast before, which is The Book of Daniel by E.L. Doctorow. Has anybody read this book? Or no? One person. Two, uh, two, two three. three. Do we have four. four. Do we have right. four. If we ask you a question, don't raise your hand. Clap so, and woo. Yeah. And also, if something's not clear, just make this noise. Ha ha! And, <laughs> and we'll repeat it. So, Great. yeah. The Book of Daniel is, uh, well, Doctorow's a genius writer, and if anybody has not ever read uh, an E.L. Doctorow book, uh, you have to go out and read something by him, because he's amazing. And this is my favorite book of his. It's a fictionalization of the Rosenbergs. Uh, so the Rosenbergs were the, the people, the couple, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were convicted of being spies for the Russian government and actually executed by the US government. And um, rather than, the real genius of Doctorow is that rather than doing just a fictional historical account of the Rosenbergs, he decides to tell um, the story from the perspective of one of their sons. And it is true that they had two sons. In the book, Doctorow makes it a son and a daughter. And the, the, the son, Daniel, who's the narrator of the book, he's narrating it from 1967. Because in real life, uh, the Rosenberg's son became a huge uh, anti-war activist. 
And it's, it's, it's a brilliant book. You guys haven't read it either, huh? No. All right, well, so... I tell a lot of people that I have. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. You, you oh, Book of Daniel. So powerful. So powerful. I never the learned. Words. The words. Like uh, Scrimshaw. So he's trying, so Daniel's in 1967, he's trying to write his doctoral dissertation. Um, and of course, he's at Columbia University, which is, and it's right on the eve of, of the, um, the student shut-in that occurred at Columbia in 68. Uh, so it's a really politically charged book, but it's actually, what's so brilliant about it is how personal that he, personal he makes this interaction because he goes, flashes back to his childhood growing up in this communist family. And then he flashes forward to his current events where his sister has tried to commit suicide. And it basically becomes this, hor this horrible examination of what it's like when you're, the government has killed your parents and you don't know if they were innocent or guilty. And what's brilliant about the book is that at the time the doctor was writing, it was only published in 1971, there, they, we had no idea if they had been innocent or guilty. We just knew that the government had proven that they were guilty enough to murder them. Uh, it has since come out, I think it was only about 10 years ago, that they did, that the husband, uh, Julius Rosenberg, actually did try and be try and give information for the atomic bomb to the, 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 uh, the Russians. But his wife, as far as we can tell, was completely innocent, and she just went to the electric chair because she refused to testify against her husband. Uh, and so this book, doesn't, it's not about whether they did it or did not do it. It's about how do you relate to your parents and how do you relate politically to your parents and their community in light of your own community and in light of the fact that they were killed by your government. It's, it's a beautiful book, and I highly, highly recommend it. It's also the linchpin the Rosenbergs of the best scene in You've Got Mail. What are you so, talking about? Tom Hanks <laughs> and Meg Ryan. That's not a book. And Greg Kinnear and whoever uh, was Tom Hanks' girlfriend in the movie. What's her name? Piper Parker Parabo. Posey. Parker Posey. Patrick <laughs> Posey. <laughs> Piper Parabo. They're standing there and they're talking to one another. And Parker Posey says, the crazy thing about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, they were our age. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Don't clap for him. Don't if clap you're, for him. Encourage if you guys. you're not fans of You've Got Mail, you can get the fuck out. <laughs> because Barnes & Noble's the hero in that. I right? don't think that's true. No. no. Oh, no. Super no. villain. No. No. Big bad right. store. Right. Okay, so what do you right. have, Todd? What's oh. your book? So I'm going next. Okay. That does sound fascinating, Ryder, and I'm going to lie and say everything about it that you've told me when people ask me if I've read it. Um, That's so, the main purpose of this yes. podcast. So I actually brought two books with me that, um, that I've been thinking about. So if, if you're fans of the show from the beginning, um, I, I brought a curiosity for myself. In our first episode, we talked about our origin stories, and I talked about how I stole a copy of, of Mice and Men from the uh, Contra Costa Library when I was 11 years old. And as I was going to my bookshelf to grab the book that I was thinking of, I saw this. And so I'd just like to show you all for one moment. If, could you hold my mic for a second, Julia? Sure. Thanks. So this is the page where the library stamps would be. And you ripped it out? <laughs> because I was afraid of the library cops storming my house <laughs> and finding the evidence, what I went ahead and did was pull that shit out. And... <laughs> Uh, but what is still remaining in here, however, is the checkout date of the person who checked it out before I stole it. Um, and that was uh, December 27th, 1983. Well, wait is, a minute. Todd, you ripped out the card with the checkout date. That's probably the date that, it, that entered the library. Oh. So, like, it had just gotten there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brand, a brand new, new book. book. Well, or so 
some stupid so, librarian stamped the Or stamped the in the wrong page. place. Yeah, that could be. So really, you prevented a lot of other people from reading Of Mice and Men. <laughs> so your origin story is the death of literature for a lot of young people. Well, I, I don't want to say... Don't that steal I, from libraries, kids. I don't want to say that I prevented it. I think by by virtue of stealing it and then talking about how I stole it from the library, that I'm actually contributing to the success of this minor novel by John Steinbeck. <laughs> so anyway, if anyone would like to come up and touch my copy of Of Mice and Men that I stole from the Walnut Creek Library in 1983, sometime on or before December 27th, you just let me know. Um, but the book I've been thinking of and, and thinking of, about in general lately is when I was a kid, for some reason, I was absolutely obsessed with the, um, the metaphysical the psychic, the Bigfoot, the, the psychic investigations, the outer body experiences. And for a long time, my favorite author, and I've never, I don't know why I've never talked about this on the show, my favorite author was this guy named Hans Holzer. Hans? Hans. Ha Hans, 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 <laughs> Hans. Look, I'm not real great with German names. <laughs> Just in general. But I was obsessed with this dude, Hans Holzer. Yeah who wrote these psychic investigator books, and I have a couple books by him. Um, in addition are these to novels, or are these? No, 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 this is nonfiction, right? Oh, of course. This is fact. Sorry. This is science yes, fact. Yes, I know, science, I agree. Science fact. So this book is called Psychic Investigator, and it details just a, a lot of true stories of Hans going out into the world. <laughs> Wait, he just opened like, randomly a yeah. page that says how, to, how it feels to be a prophet. <laughs> Yeah. Hans knows. Hans knows. <laughs> there it is. So Hans Hans was a great writer. I'd like to I'll, I'll just read a little bit from from what uh, he says here in the beginning of chapter 4 how it feels to be a prophet. People have been saying things about the future ever since man realized he had a future. Ooh, deep. Oh, deep. Thanks, Hans. <laughs> wow. Tautology 101. Some said it publicly and became prophets or sometimes Storm centers. Wait, what? I'll read that again. <laughs> so wait a minute. So people have been saying things about the future ever since man realized he had a future. Some said it publicly and became prophets, or Jesus. sometimes storm centers. Storm from X Men, like Jesus and Storm from X Men. Yeah, that's Storm Center Five. I, yeah. That's that's the genius of Hans Holzer. So, I of all the writers that I think I read. As a kid, Steinbeck, of course, huge influence. <laughs> and then the investigative work of one Hans Holzer, also a lynchman. I don't even know if this guy's books are still in print, if you can buy them on the internet. They, they must be like Kindle-able or Nookable, I suppose. Um, but if you're looking for a great summer read for the last seven days of summer, I recommend Psychic Investigator by Hans Holzer. Awesome. Okay, well, I too thought of our origin story thing, and I actually went over to this Barnes and Noble and searched for Interstellar Pig just to show you guys <laughs> it existed, um, which it does exist, but you have to order it online. Oh. Thanks for nothing, Barnes and Noble. Um, so we'll skip wow. right over that. Um, have you ever seen the movie You've Got Mail? <laughs> okay, you're done. <laughs> I'm turning you off. Okay, um, so and I. Uh, so I also kind of brought two. I just read um, Sandman by Neil Gaiman. I'm sure tons of people here have read it. Who's read it? Woo, -woo. Woo and clapping. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, if you haven't, actually, that was less than I expected. It's an extremely popular series of graphic novels, and they're amazing. It's about um, the Sandman, who is related to 
he's his real name is Dreams. He's related to Death, Destiny, and he is pulled down and trapped by people who are trying to stop death. And then without the power of Dreams, people go insane. So it's actually it's really dark. It's really cool. Sounds like something Hans yeah. Holzer might be interested in. It does. I think you mean Hans. <laughs> Um, but then um, I was thinking about Tampa and some other books, and uh, we'll get to it later, but my pet peeve is when a novel has some huge deus ex machina at the end and something easy happens that makes everything convenient. And um, so I actually thought about the book um, The Witches by Roald Dahl, which I'm sure a lot of people have read. Um, and my favorite thing about The Witches, now don't even start about the movie because the movie has an incorrect ending. The What's ending? the movie? You have not seen it? The movie Witches? The Witches. All right. Yeah, it's got... Um, so it's a, just a movie about this uh, kid who's turned into a mouse, which is also what the book is about. It's an adaptation. He's turned into a mouse by witches. And in the movie, he turns back into a boy, as anyone would understand. But um, what I love about the book, The Witches, is that they kill the head witch, but what that means is he is trapped as a mouse forever. And there's no there's no way to save it. And it's it's so unusual for a children's novel. And so this is from the end. So he, he's with his grandmother. I'm gonna read a little bit because it's just, it's so much better than having him turn back into a boy and everything is okay. So, um, so let's see, here we go. She says, well, an ordinary mouse lives for about three years, but you're not an ordinary mouse. You're a mouse person and that is very different matter. How different, I asked. How long does a mouse person live, Grandmama? Longer, she said, much longer. How much longer, I asked. A mouse person will almost certainly live for three times as long as an ordinary mouse. About nine years. <laughs> Good, I cried, that's great. It's the best news I've ever had. Why do you say that, she asked, surprised. Because I would never want to live longer than you, I said. I couldn't stand being looked after by anybody else. Aww. I'll skip a little, there's more. How old are you, Grandmama, I asked. I'm 86, she said. Will you live another eight or nine years? I might, she said, with a bit of luck. You've got to, I said, because by then I'll be a very old mouse and you'll be a very old grandmother and soon after that we'll both die together. That would be perfect, she said. Jesus. Oh my God. <laughs> so, but. Oh my God. <laughs> what kind of fucking book That is, is like the worst. Horrible. No, it's great. Oh. It's horrible. That's like when I saw Red Dawn when I was seven. <laughs> And I ran out to my dad, and I was like, are the Russians going to invade our school? <laughs> Is and Patrick like, Swayze our only hope? And my dad was just like, well, the Russians, you know? And, I, and my dad was like, the, you know, the most dry atheist. I was like, well, what happens if I get shot? Well, you're dead. And I just remember <laughs> watching my dad like in his workshop. He was like, oh, then you die. I'm like, well, what happens? If then you're dead. And it was like burned in my memory. This is awful. No, it's great, because it doesn't solve problems that are unsolvable. It uses fantasy novel to to make Have a small child fear death. Right. Okay. No, well, I actually agree. I actually agree. I think that <laughs> it's definitely nice to... I mean, I'd much rather have that. Than and it, it creates a, a higher coded. literary moment right. than of Sparkles. You know? Right. The end. Right. I, I like the idea of a stripper named Sparkles showing up at the end. Hi, I'm Sparkles. <laughs> I'm going to fix this mouse problem Is you got. Is he still a mouse? <laughs> yeah. the idea of someone named Sparkles showing up. Okay. Like that. Yeah. Great. All right, Todd. Let's uh, let's hear some some poet voice. Uh, so, first, why don't you tell us what poet voice? Yeah, is for I'll, the I'll do that. So, um, how many of you have ever been to a reading in some coffee house somewhere? Great, great job. Yeah, and and there's that that guy walks up or that woman. They're wearing all black and like they've already told you about their abuse. 
while drinking coffee, and now they're going to read poetry about it. And they have that strange, halting lilt that makes you both simultaneously want to kill them and then also be lulled into a quiet, easy sleep. <laughs> I find that extraordinarily annoying. Um, and it causes me to dislike poems and poets in general. Um, and so my job, I feel, as a person is to change the way poets read their work by mocking it incessantly for about the last 15 years. What I have found, however, is that you can say anything in poet voice, and provided you put the words mother and I hate you father into the poem, oh, and you also usually should use the word upon in the poem, that it will sound like a poem. Um, so what we like to do on the show sometimes is I will take two things that are not poetry and one thing that is poetry and read them in the same voice and make my co-host guess what, what is the actual poem. And he is allowed to insert into any of the three mother, mother father, I hate you, dad, or and upon. Mom. And, and, or I hate you, mom. And, um, that you sort of evens the playing yeah, field. Right. So that way, everything is in the same basic voice. So we're going to involve the audience here today as well. Um, I'm going to read these three selections. And if you need me to repeat any of them before the, the award ceremony, let me know. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll do that. All right. <clears throat> so two are not poems. One is. Are you guys ready? Yeah. <clears throat> Mother, why do they occasionally scream when they are in pain or are extremely frightened or upset? Mother, are they extremely frightened or upset? A puffing noise or snorting means they are in uncomfortable situation and nervous about what is going on. Mother, are they a bit nervous? When they are happy or content, they make a gentle purring sound, <laughs> not unlike that of a cat. When they are happy, they also make a snuffling sound when they are enjoying exploring their environment. Mother, <laughs> they are not like a cat. Anointing is one of their most interesting behaviors. Mother, why did you make me hate my father? <laughs> it's number one. Uh, please. Don't clap. No, no clapping. No, no clapping. <laughs> you may snap. Yes. Yeah, you may snap. You may, you may go and make coffee. Yeah, I'm going to make an espresso machine yes. sound. Yeah, can we get the espresso turned up to 12 back there? <laughs> You can put on a cardigan quietly. All right. <clears throat> Number two. It begins. Mother. He thought she looked straight out of a James Bond movie. The only thing missing was a knife in a sheath. Mother. This annoying, amusing, amazing, beautiful woman was off limits. He looked down at her, stretched upon the chase. Eyes closed against the sun and thought, Mother, it might be worth getting kicked down the road for a night with her. Mother, why did you make me hate my father? <laughs> it's number two. 
Jesus Christ. You guys are so obedient. It's horrible. Oh my God, I finally have figured out how to start my own cult. <laughs> All right, here's number three. It begins, Mother, <laughs> Asheville, North Carolina, is the birthplace of Thomas Wolfe and the sometime residence of F. Scott Fitzgerald. When he visited Zelda at her institution, he stayed at the Grove Park Inn, a grand <laughs> stone edifice. Mother, on the phone once, Cormac McCarthy lamented the two added wings and the spa and marveled at the original structure. Mother, they pulled the stones from the mountains and brought them down on mules. Soon after his 40th birthday, Fitzgerald attempted suicide here, but couldn't shoot his own head. Drunk, I guess. Later, after he was actually dead from alcohol, Zelda perished in a fire at her institution, one of nine. Mother, why did you make me hate my father? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. All right. So I, I, turn it, I turn to you guys first. So what we think... What, which one do you think is the poem? Yes. The question for me isn't which one is the poem. The question is which animal anoints other animals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking... Yeah. Number, dolphin? <laughs> it is not a dolphin. Number one is some kind of animal. Yeah, animal description. Manual, manual statement. Right. And the third one is like a travel guide, historical... For a minute, I thought it was a description of here until it got... You oh, know, right, it's growth. something related to here. I don't know. I, I can't I, tell you. The second one didn't even really sound like a poem either, but I'm, I'm assuming that's what it that's has to be. That's just Todd doing his thing. Yeah. You got really into it. It was a very emotional it, um, You know, I, I'm going through some shit right me. now. You know, right. I, um, yeah. it's a lot of stuff. Just a lot of pain. Right. A lot of sadness. Yeah. Well, just, let's, let's turn it to these thank guys. Thank you for the snapping. <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's, uh, let's turn it to the audience. Raise your hand, and, uh, and, and Lee will bring you a microphone. Oh, I'm if sorry. If you want to make a guess. Yeah, if you'd like to make a guess which one is the poem, if you'd like me to repeat anything, just raise your hand. Oh, yes, ma'am. Oh, she's coming with the mic. Don't, don't say a word. Don't, don't say a word. You, you believe it's number two? Definitely the second one. Why do you believe it's the second one? It sounded the most poetic. It sounded the most poetic. So true. All right. Other guesses? You only have three choices here, people. Uh, Jeff, you think it's number three? <laughs> Jeff in the back thinks it's none of the above. Oh, we got a couple of those. Uh, there's, for there's, that. <laughs> that would be a major cheat. Let, here's what we'll do. Cheat. This this won't make for a great podcast, but how many think it's won by sound of applause? <laughs> how many think it's number two from sound of applause? And how many think it's number three? All right. Number one, the other day, uh, Ryder and Julia and I, before our podcast, were talking about the fact that Ryder and Julia had both been in Cat and Dog Fancy, respectively. We have. We Julia have. and Cat, Ryder and Dog Fancy. Oh he, my needed, God. he needed the work. Uh, the pictures are salacious. I hope this is what I think. Um, and so we jokingly said, oh, I wonder if there's like gerbil fancy. And we implored Todd to get into hamster fancy and hamster fancy and so <laughs> I typed in hamster fancy on the internet 
Got a ball of Jergens. Um, <laughs> let that one marinate for a second. And it turns out that the fancy people do, in fact, have all kinds of small critter fancy magazines that come under the small critter oh. channel uh, <gasps> website, but they also put out a critter fancy, basically. And what I read in number one is uh, some interesting things about the hedgehog. <laughs> um, <laughs> and their behavior. So I, I took some lines on, on the proper care and feeding of your hedgehog and what you can expect from the, their behavior. Um, I took out the word hedgehog, obviously. I am fascinated by the fact that hedgehogs scream. Why do they scream when they are in pain? They fucking scream. So number one is not a poem. Wait, but are you gonna try to get into Small Critter Fancy? You oh, must. I'm, oh, I'm in. <laughs> I'm deep in. I'm deep in. They're no, not going to let you in. <laughs> number two is also not a poem. Oh. Number two is some description from a novel called The Heist, written by my brother Lee and <laughs> Janet Ivanovich for sale at the giant table of the copies of The Heist downstairs at the Barnes & Noble. It, um, it's my brother writing about a woman. And I found that upsetting and strange. Thanks for So sharing. I turned that into poetry. So number three is the poem. Wow. Wow. This is from a very famous poem. I'm surprised you guys don't know it. Do any of you know this poem? This is from James Franco's uh, Obama inauguration poem. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote this in honor so of the, Obama's inauguration. The guy who said none of the above is the winner? This is, a, this is a, one of the most famous poems in the last couple years, for sure. James Franco. Wow. From you, his Obama poem. You've upset and disappointed our audience. He's, he and Jewel, I think, are the two best-selling um, poets in America now. Oh, wait, was it really a poem? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, he even performed it on the YouTube. You can see him reading it, like, in bed... It's a real poem. All like right. if you, those of you who want to read the rest of it, because it goes on and on and on and on. Just name dropping literature, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can you can go find it on your on your phones now and read it. If, if anyone's a huge fan of James Franco's poetry, I apologize uh, now. Um, but I thought I thought it'd be good to read some of it here. Yeah. Well, yeah. great. Well, you Thank fooled you. everybody. I did. Much. I fooled everyone. So, some, no, some, some people some said. People All right, Ronak knew it. Who, who? Be honest. Who said number three for real? All right, you you people have terrible five. taste in poetry. Uh, well, we do have we have some extra brownies. All right, yes. Yeah, so, so you can share them. Yes. After. Yes, pass around some of Lee's brownies to yeah. only the winners, no losers. Third place, you get if you if you guess three, raise your hand and Lee will give you a brownie. Right there. All right. All right. Well, thank you guys for playing Thanks, along. Thanks, guys. Let's get to the meat of the show now, shall yeah, we? Yeah, let's do it. Let's bring up the lovely and talented Ivy Pakoda. Ivy, come on up. Woo! Yeah. Hey, hey Ivy. Hey, Todd. How you doing? Good. How are you? How are you, Ryder, Julia? Hi. Great. Good. It's a tough act to follow. It's not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't envy you. Yeah. Ooh. James Franco. I'm Franco, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't envy you. Um, so... Ivy went to graduate school with the three of us, though um, she was many years behind us, I think, at the and time. And they were so mean to me. We did a lot of hazing. I know. We, we did? did a shitload of it. Yeah. Oh, I don't yeah. even remember it. Oh, yeah, we shaved her head. It was awful. Yeah, we shaved her head and called her Ryan. It was strange. <laughs> um, 
but so Ivy went to graduate school with us, and uh, and I read her first book, which was fantastic, and I brought her out to talk to my students a year or two ago. And so when her new book was announced, I was very excited. And then I saw that it was the second book that Dennis Lehane had selected. Is it the second one? It is the second one. That's pretty fucking amazing. And it mm -hmm. is Visitation Street, which is available for sale right here behind us. Um, so let's we're going to talk a little bit about your book and about you in general. So oh. What's Let's your, skip the book. What's your origin story? Tell mm. us when you got your superpower of writing. Because you were an athlete first, just like the rest of us. Totally, yeah. Uh, <laughs> hmm. Well, I started writing because being a professional athlete is pretty damn boring. Yeah, I, I hated... Really? Julia, yeah. Julia used to fuck all the groupies. With I know. Yeah. <laughs> Dull. Dull being the badminton champ. I used to play squash, and I'd say, well, I'm a writer. And they say, oh, you sit at home. Do you write emails? So, I, yeah. <laughs> Like I was at home all day writing like 500 emails. <laughs> That's very odd. It was a classic comment. So when when you were when you were actively doing physical activity, just like the rest of us, writers actually in a kickball league. That um, that is true. That is true, which is strange. And I just I I, I stopped playing football because of the Judaism. Um, <laughs> when you decided that. Being a professional athlete maybe wasn't in your future that you wanted to be a writer. Was there a book that changed you? Was there a book that you picked up and said, oh, my God, this this thing is, you know, my Bible Yeah, now. totally. I mean, I was living in Amsterdam while trying to be a professional squash player, and the irony of that is not lost on me whatsoever. <laughs> it, it, it totally didn't work. Um, so, you know, we'd get up at, like, 6 in the morning and train, and, like, it was fun to be in Amsterdam and this and that. But um, I... Red Fortress of Solitude by Jonathan Lethem, uh. which is set on a block away from where I grew up. And I thought, oh my God, whether or not this is the best book, he nailed my neighborhood. And I miss home so much because I'm living in Amsterdam in a, basically in a squat, trying to play squash. And that book kind of changed my life. That, like, oh. That's a sentence I've never heard. I was living in a squat trying to play squash. It's true. That sounds dirty. Yeah, I was just living in that squat, doing that squash. Yeah, it, well, this is true. Um, so I read Fortress of Solitude, and I thought, wow, you know, making something so personal to me, like, into a story was just the coolest thing I'd ever read. That's so I interesting, because I actually thought of his book while reading your book. I mean, because wow. there was an obvious lineage there. I mean, because he's like mm. the Brooklyn writer, you know, know, in so many ways. So that's that kind of makes sense. That's yeah, great. it was a huge influence, and I thought, well, you know, if he can write, you know, about neighborhoods and people on the block and make that into a story, I, I should try my hand at this. Mm -hmm. And so your first book wasn't really a mystery. This one is. This is this is sort of a social and general mystery. Unintentionally. I did not set out to write a mystery, and I have to be very clear about that. I set out to write about the neighborhood I lived in, mm -hmm. which was Red Hook, and someone goes missing at the beginning, and you find out what happens at the end. Later on, I discovered I'd written a mystery when my editor said, oh, would you like Dennis Lehane to blurb this? And I thought, well, why in God's name would he blurb my book? So <laughs> <laughs> worked out. <laughs> well, and, you know, it's sort of, it's in that tradition of like a Dennis Lehane novel. Dennis Lehane, before... You know, he wrote the books I think most of us know. Yeah. He wrote straight crime novels, yes. you know, PI novels, and then mm -hmm. Mystic River, which I think you know this falls in that same general lineage of novels, really about a place as much as they are about a person or an event. You know, he he fundamentally changed crime to be more fundamentally accepted as literature. And so, I, you know, if you accidentally wrote a crime novel, yeah, big deal. Hey, you know what? It worked out. Yeah, it worked out perfectly. Well, it's great that you wrote the book you wanted to write, and then 
other people get to name it. That's actually that's really idea. been an interesting experience, you know. It's kind of funny because sometimes I'll go to, I've been to like mystery and crime writer conferences and they say, well, tell us about the murder in your book. And I'm like, you know. <laughs> Not really say much about the fact that no one is murdered in this book. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's never in there. So it's, you know, it's, it's great. I love when people tell you what you write. It's actually really rewarding because then you don't have to describe your own work. <laughs> so how do, I mean, can you explain what the whole Dennis Lehane imprint is? Because that's a kind of a newish phenomenon, right? Yeah, I can't explain it, though I don't know all that, you know, much about it. So Dennis Lehane has an imprint at HarperCollins. My book was purchased by Echo, an literary imprint at HarperCollins, and my editor just sent it out blindly for a blurb into Dennis Lehane's slush pile. And she said, well, don't get your hopes up. We send it out to all these big authors, and every once in a while, you know, one of them comes back. Do you know anyone famous? Like, yeah. like, <laughs> like, do you know Laura Littman? Do you know Michael Chabon? I said, well, no, but he actually is published by you, so could you call him? <laughs> <laughs> so then I got a call out of the blue that, you know, Dennis picked my book out of the slush pile, and he didn't want to blur, but he wanted to co-release it on his imprint. And would that possibly be okay with me? And, it, and there was some discussion about why it might not be okay with me. <laughs> Is there something I have to do? I know. <laughs> I said, well, uh, well, then I was like, I'm going to give him a list of terms and conditions, <laughs> which I did. What were your terms and conditions? Well, he couldn't just publish it. He had to blurb it, and mm -hmm. he had to appear with me in public. Oh, oh. good terms and wow. conditions. Wow. Stalker, also. Yeah. <laughs> Not only do you have to publish, you have to stay with me. <laughs> He's got to come over twice a week. Also, my last name is Is he, is like, Lahane. hidden in the kids section over there? <laughs> that's his waving. <laughs> wow, that's, that is, that's ballsy. That was smart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought, you know... To be honest, if he's going to put his name on the book, he's got to stand behind it. Mm -hmm. And he was very obliging. Good. Wow. That's very cool. very cool. Yeah. So what, what's the experience been of, you know, you, you've had your first novel, and then all of a sudden this one explodes. You know, you, you already had that dream come true of your mm -hmm. first book mm -hmm. being published, and then your second one comes out, and it's an entirely different experience. It is a totally different experience. I think it was kind of cool to have the first book not do very well. And I, <laughs> I know I'm serious. <laughs> Imagine having 12 of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck because <laughs> I learned you know how to I learned what I had to do myself like who I had to call and who you need to meet and like I was really like you know aggressive personally at bookstores and with you know publicity people and suddenly it's like I didn't know what was going to happen. They said, well, you know, would you fly to San Francisco for a pre-bookseller dinner? I said, well, you know, could you pay for my cab to the airport? And they're like, no, we're going to put you up in a hotel and we're going to like have a limo pick you up. And like, so it was just really strange and I didn't know how to behave because I just kind of imagined that books were something you did yourself and that right. there was never an engine behind it. But it is really great. I mean, God, it's like a dream come true, but it has been really strange. And But then it makes you greedy, you know? It really does. You're like, well, why wasn't my book reviewed in the Washington Post? Her book was reviewed in the Washington Post and the Chicago Tribune. It's like, it's never good enough. No, no, that's ever. correct. No, but it is. It's better than I could have imagined. I mean, and no. you were in People Magazine for God's sake. That was the coolest thing in the entire world. But it was weird because you were having sex with Bradley Cooper. Totally, <laughs> pick of the week. <laughs> yeah. But has she been in Lizard Fancy? Did, did I fancy? hear snapping from somewhere? <laughs> 
<laughs> I have to confess that I own rabbits and I do subscribe to the Critter Fancy Magazine. Oh my, oh my god. god. What are the chances wow. that our guest would subscribe? That's wow. Awesome. Yes, yeah, snap. Well, I actually steal them from the vet's office, but Wait, I Wait, rabbits like, don't get their own magazine? Yes, they're lagomorphs. They're not really critters, but they do wind up in the Critter Magazine. Wait, excuse they're, me? They're they're what? They're lagomorphs. It means they have an extra set of teeth. They're not rodents. Like like aliens? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like alien. It's like a, it comes out of the back of their mouth. I don't even know what's <laughs> happening anymore. And they're called lagomorphs? Lagomorphs. Wait, it's name a la- another lagomorph. They're only rabbits. So oh, hares, hares. Which are rabbits. What's that? Which are basically rabbits. No, rabbits and hares are different. Wow. Do you, believe that, do you believe that farmers and cowmen can be friends? Hares are born without hair, ironically, and rabbits are born fully furry, and they're different. That seems so minor. You're learning so much. Wow. <laughs> How long have you owned rabbits? Three and a half years. It was an accident. <laughs> like when Jesus was found? Or Mo- who, wait, who was found? Moses. Moses was found. When Jesus was found. I'm not great on the origin story. I just know how it ends. <laughs> we found some rabbits in Culver City walking down the street. So Upright? <laughs> yeah, <it's> all, <laughs> with Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, Is I this feel... like a furry situation? <laughs> what? I'm just, I'm just oh, okay. Wow. More snapping. Todd went right to Good. the sexual deviancy. Yeah. Okay, well. Which is a nice segue. Yeah. So, yeah. so um... So Ivy's, Ivy's book is great. And Ivy's you guys book is fantastic. Yes, Visitation buy Street. You should Thank buy it. Thank you. It's for sale right back there. It's it's a Barnes and Noble discover great new writers pick for fall, which is fantastic. Which means she has the the stamp of not just Dennis Lehane, not just the three of us, but also um, your neighborhood bookstore Barnes and Noble. Which I'm so grateful and excited about. It's very exciting. All right. So now the important thing. Why did you make us read Smut? <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, because I wanted to hear what you had to say about it in public. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the book we're talking about, it is a new release. It's called Tampa by Alyssa Nutting. Um, our copies have a gross fake a velvet, velvet cover. cover. Yeah. I don't have a velvet Tampa. <laughs> um, so if you want to come up and touch it after. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> you already offered with your book. Oh, the book. Okay. Yeah. Uh, then you may feel free to do so. Um, it is about a eighth grade English teacher. Can I just say something real quick, though? Sure. My, I've been reading. This is covered in I've been reading my book in bed, and it has an, just an entire just pelt of Scout and Minnie, my dog hair, stuck to it. So it is significantly less desirable than it was when it first arrived. You're correct. It yeah, mine, mine has some cat hair on it. Oh, that's um, gross. All right, if you want an animal-free version, go I've got mine because I took my dust jacket off the second I got this book because I found it so creepy and weird, <laughs> as if the content wasn't uh, creepy enough. Um, so yeah, this is the story of an eighth-grade teacher who s- becomes an eighth-grade teacher basically to seduce a male student, and the book details uh, her first. It starts with her first day of school. Yes. But let's. Uh, why don't we just read the first sentence? Let's have Who's... Ivy read the first so, sentence. Well, let's. Only. God's we, sake. We should also warn people. This is going to get really graphic. Yes. Immediately. Very quick, so yes. we'll give you a second to decide whether or not you yes. want. Did you guys plan this little trick? Yeah. Right so now. if you have anyone uh, whose uh, father um, is not a crime writer and you're a small child, you might want to leave the room. <laughs> 
All right, Ivy, why, why don't you go ahead and just read, um, just read as much as you feel comfortable with? I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter one. Bam. Are we done now? <laughs> you fucking picked it. You made us read it. <laughs> I liked it. I spent the night before my first day of teaching in an excited loop of hushed masturbation on my side of the mattress, never falling asleep. To bed, I'd worn in secret a silk chemise and sheer panties, beneath my robe, of course, so that my husband Ford wouldn't pillage me. He always wants to ruin the landscape. I find it hilarious that people think Ford and I are the perfect couple, based solely on our looks. During his best man speech at our wedding reception, Ford's brother said, you two are like his and hers winners of the genetic lottery. His voice slurring with noticeable envy, he then added that our faces looked photoshopped. It's pretty clean from here on in. Yeah. yeah. Was... So let's jump to page 200 where the anal sex starts. <laughs> He's not kidding. No. With the 14-year-old? <laughs> yep. So, yeah, I mean, in, I think in the best world, Alyssa Nutting was thought she was writing Lolita, the, the mm-hmm. female version of Lolita. But it, and my, I mean, let's just get right to the opinion part. <laughs> Completely misses the mark and ends up writing basically a pornographic 14-year-old boy fantasy of what they wish their teacher would have done. Or it's, it's just sex scene after sex scene. The plot is... Well, you feel differently about this. You actually enjoyed it. Well, no, Ivy and I had a conversation before the show like this. You know what our problem was with the book mostly? The plot. The plot. Yeah, 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 me too. Yeah. Yeah. I think the writing's pretty good. You know, I think there's some really witty observations in there. I think, you know, seriously, the thing she, if you had to get inside the mind of a 26-year-old pedophile, like, she pretty much nails it. (laughs) Mm. The things you might think about, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, she pretty much inhabits that character. That's that's the part that I couldn't believe. What did she get wrong? Well, <laughs> Let me tell you about that. Uh, is a ver- that's a trick question. I think you know. You know what? Because I was thinking about the comparison to Lolita, and I hadn't I haven't read Lolita in years. But I, I was thinking about the, the narrator. You know, Humbert Humbert, and Humbert Humbert starts Lolita basically saying, "I'm a normal guy. Uh, you know, any any I, I'm tr- I I didn't do anything wrong. I I know it was wrong, but I have really good feelings, and I really had great. And he spends the whole book basically defending his actions, and he's trying to convince you, the reader, of how good and wholesome and and how much he loved Lolita, even though he knows it's wrong. He can't help it. He's a messed up guy. This book just went right to I'm psychotic and I know it and I'm going yeah. to enjoy fucking this 14 year old boy which to me takes all the nuance all the art 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 out of this book I mean the unreliable narrator factor was what you enjoy about Lolita I right. mean you open it because of this salacious plot right you open it because you go what how is this possible that you could write a good book about this but then you you move beyond it. So the the book that I was actually thinking about halfway through Tampa, I was like, there's something else that this is reminding me of. And by the my time my fantasies of yeah, being exactly. a 14 year old. By the time she was covered in blood and running through the streets, it hit me. It's American Psycho, oh, absolutely. which is yeah. much closer yeah. to what and that I, she's going for a much sort of cartoonier version um, of of a story like this. And even there, I think she fell short yeah. because it wasn't magical or weird enough. It's too, 
Yeah, it's it's trying to have too many things at the same time. It's trying to be so many genres. I'm not the big defender of this. Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> we always choose someone to we, yell we at. We always choose someone to, to make our bitch in prison, basically. But, and you're it today, Ivy. You know, like, I... I was game to read this book and to get into that point of view and to get into the details, but where it missed for me was the details about the boy or the boys. There ends up being a, a few. Um, you know, there's, yeah, guys, yeah. Um, because it didn't like evoke this teenage boy at all. It was just, it was all about the narrator. It was so narcissistic in that way. It was like, look at this shocking person I'm putting in front of you. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it didn't convince me that this boy was, you know, attractive enough or boyish enough. So like, for example, I just, I got Lolita from the shelves here because I was like, I must compare the language. So And, and uh, Barnes and I will make sure that she pays for this on the way out. Um, I'll just put it back. And don't take that into the bathroom, by the way. There's a sign. <laughs> So, so That's he, really dirty. Here's a passage from here's a passage from Lolita. And while I'm reading this, if someone wants to grab a passage about, um, I don't even remember no, his I mean, name. Um, Jack. 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 Yeah. Oh boy. Um, that'd be great. All right. So here's Lolita. I found Dolores Hayes at the kitchen table, consuming a wedge of pie with her eyes fixed upon a script. They rose to meet mine with a kind of celestial vapidity. She remained singularly unruffled when confronted with my discovery and said, Don petite air face mon country, that she knew she was a very wicked kid, but simply had not been able to resist my enchantment and had used, used up those music hours. Oh, reader, my reader. That's the begging that Ryder's talking about where he's trying to convince the reader. In a nearly public park, rehearsing the magic forest scene with Mona. So you have this real sense of this girl, you know, messing with him. Well, let's also be clear things. here that that's Nabokov. Yeah, so, well, whatever. You, know, you can so compare the, the, any two books. You can, but you know, you're you're comparing someone's first novel with one of the masters of literature, which I think, plot to plot, it's a fair comparison. Sentence to sentence, it probably isn't. Well, also, Celeste isn't smart, but Humbert Humbert's smart. Right. She's dumb. I mean, she's doing this, and her dad, her husband's a cop. I right. think she's a dumb woman. She's, and, she doesn't seem to understand the consequences of her actions. No, and that was the one qualm I had with the book was the consequences were not all that terrible. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there is something about you know the choice to like in the passage um, that Julia just read. I mean, she, he's describing her smile, her eating this, you know, eating, and it's it's an interesting nuance. What Nutting decides to like spend a lot of time describing is her lover's balls and like what they look like. No joke. It'll be like it's half true. a page to, about that. To her credit, she nails that. Right. Nails it. I mean, nails the it. image Just is, but that literally. Be, <laughs> that, you know, that is, it's, what's the point of that? What do you gain from, you know, overly wordy description of just physical attributes that don't, you know, uh, that don't point anywhere else? Because you think about American Psycho, right? He describes killing in detail and you're repulsed and you're, but it becomes this allegory for, you know, 80s Wall Street. I don't know what this is possibly well, pointing towards. Like, I, I wonder about that because, you know, anyone who would do what she's doing might think in this sort of crazy, thoughtless way. I like that, one of the things I did kind of like was that the boys aren't good looking. They're mm -hmm. just willing victims. Right. I think that's more like he Humbert Humbert has this long seduction of you know Dolores and you know he likes Dolores. He doesn't just like nymphettes. Like he likes this particular one. Mm -hmm. She likes boys. Mm -hmm. You know? And I kind of didn't mind that these boys I thought it was normal. Like she's gonna take what she can get. And I thought that was kind of natural. 
I, I did think that the the consequences were where her you know thought process did break down, but you know that they the boys were just whatever any port in a storm you know anyone who's going to stay after class and like be hot for teacher was good for her. But and I, I don't believe that. That's the part I don't believe. But see, yeah. I be, I don't believe Humbert Humbert either. I believe that no. he would have taken any thirteen year old girl he could have. But he's as a narrator trying to tell us it's her it's her I really just love her and that's how we mm. rationalize things. I don't believe that somebody's sitting back there and saying you know oh I I really just want anybody and I'm just going to find the most you know perfect boy child that will go along with my manipulation. <laughs> I think th I think the challenge for her also is that she starts at such a high point of madness. So she doesn't where she yeah. ends up by the end of the book. We're not going to spoil anything to, by telling you it goes wrong. <laughs> not all that wrong. Not not all that, not wrong. All that wrong, but Actually, it goes wrong. Not it doesn't terribly I, wrong. I mean it's not like a Disney story at the end. She doesn't at the end say, "Oh, Sparkles here. Oh, Sparkles <laughs> showed Sparkles. up again." <laughs> but, you know, there's there there's a conclusion that, you know, is not is not Mary Kay Letourneau's, where she ends up marrying the kid and living happy, happily ever after. And I think that's the challenge of this book, is that you know the stories that we know about this stuff, where we know sort of the ending, are pretty complex affairs most yeah. of the time. You know, when you think of someone like Mary Kay Letourneau, who went to prison, got out, and married that kid that she was sleeping with and had kids with him, you know, it's... It, it, the truth ends up being more interesting and more salacious than what this book is. Yeah. Right. But Mary Kay Letourneau has different um, perversion than this woman. Mary Kay Letourneau likes the kid. She likes 14-year-olds. Right. Those are different perversions. That's a good point. She doesn't want to wind up with the kid. She wants the kid never to grow up. So she can, she wants to have an endless fodder of 14-year-olds. So ultimately, at the end of the book, not to give it away, she gets her wish. Right. Yeah, she does. Yeah. I would say this is as happy an ending as you could get. Absolutely. I have to totally agree with that. Seriously. She lands. <laughs> she doesn't you, land anyone. Not just the character. So I want to I want to bring up one interesting point, and it goes to sort of what I was talking about a moment ago about her starting off at the point of madness, which is she describes herself and everyone else describes her throughout the book as being remarkably attractive. And there's a at the beginning of chapter three, there's a part where people keep saying she should be a, mo a model. And the what I thought was the absolute best part of the book, the one part of the book where I thought, oh, this is really going to turn for me. She says she doesn't want to become a model because she fears that someone eventually would look at the picture and say, oh my God, I see you, you're a soulless pervert. And that they could see it in the picture. And that's that moment mm -hmm. of, oh my God, she knows that she's a monster and is afraid that people could see it in her. But that, that recognition in her does not change her behavior. And I think that's that point where, you know, she, she's crazy and she's dangerous, but she doesn't care. And she doesn't yeah. care that other people can see it. I think that's that's the, the part of the book where I think, okay, this writer, Alyssa Nutting, with her um, Cocker Spaniel hair covered cover, um, she's got some. She's got something that might not be in this book, but might be in her sure. next book. Oh, I just wish she would go there. And like, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, here's a new pet peeve of mine that I realized from this book. Um, magical attractiveness as a plot device. Mm. You know, it's here, it's in Gone Girl, which I actually liked, but it's a huge part of that too. Oh, I loved Gone There's Girl. There's tons and tons Haven't of books now where it's like it. written by, it's written by someone who, well, I don't like, I, I don't know why you would make such an easy choice for yourself. Like, why wouldn't you want to see how an ordinary, quote unquote, looking woman would seduce a 14 year old. They're all like this magical hotness is starting to really annoy me because it's like, it cuts out so much work of seduction or, you know, they're, and they're so aware of how hot they are. Are hot people that aware of yeah, how hot they are? Yeah, I mean, it's. Todd? 
I mean, it's a burden in a way. There's so much time spent. It was in the first paragraph of like, we're picture perfect, we're models. No one ever assumes anything because they were like two Barbies together. And there's which is hot. (laughs) Totally hot. But I, you know, it's it's like either I don't believe. Well, I don't believe two things. I don't believe people who are like Barbie looking attractive think about it as much as these first person narrators. You haven't spent enough time in L.A., Julia. (laughs) That's true. I'm not from here. Um, And B, I just don't think like it makes them. It also makes them automatically vapid. Like that's also a signifier of like I'm so hot. This is. I guess I have to be a pervert because everyone wants to have sex with me anyway. Like that's not. That's not plotting. That's that's just a character choice that it's like it's like when authors describe someone's clothes for too long and you're like okay 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 you know like really. Oh yeah, there's a section's book over the other day that does that. I wanted to point out. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, luckily that's not translating to radio. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I, 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 was, I was annoyed by the, the, the description of every adult male in the book, too. It was like, really, every adult male is this repulsive to you? Yeah. And, and repulsive in the exact same set of characteristics. They're, the adult males are superficial because they all want her, mm-hmm. and they're consumerists, and they're alcoholics, and they're all just gross, and I didn't believe that. Again, it was like, really? Like, we can't have a little bit of nuance here to draw me into... I mean, I believe that there is a crazy person out there who maybe thinks like this you know, 80% of the time, but I want that 20% of doubt. I wanted that just enough flavor of doubt, you know, and instead I feel like maybe, and maybe this is an editor, somebody pushed Alyssa Nutting to be like, well, you need to get the Fifty Shades of Grey audience. Like, you need it to be just, just about the sex and just, just make your character, uh, you know, monolithic in her pursuit. And that, to me, sells the book short because if you, if you have a plot like this, you, you gotta convince me of it. Not just well, the cover of her crazy. Well, and the, the thing is about the sex is that because the sex scenes are just what the plot is, right. there, there is a sameness about chapter to chapter, page to right. page, page. The positions change. You know, sometimes yeah. it's anal, sometimes it's not. Um, sometimes there's licking, sometimes there's not. Um, but because there's not an escalation in the sex, in fact, there's sort of an emotional de-escalation in the sex, right. it's just the same scenes with a different, without a change in value, basically. It never lives up to that first time. <laughs> well, actually, my, for me, the high point of the craziness, and I was on board still at this point, was early on. Or can you recover from that, Tom? <laughs> I don't know if I can. <laughs> so very early on, um, she describes, this is super graphic. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Re- Cover your ears. Do you, want, uh, do you want Ivy to read it again? Uh, no, but what she does is she's describing like her history with um, seducing boys, and she like she has one of their names written on a piece of paper for some reason. Oh, no, this, this oh, is hard yes. to take. Yeah, and she rolls it up and inserts it like a tampon. Yeah. And... Uh, that was sincerely shocking. In the middle of dinner with her husband. Yeah. Yes. And it was, that was a moment where I thought I was going to like the book because. <laughs> because that's how I first met my boyfriend. <laughs> I divined him into being through my <laughs> vagina. Because I, oh my God, my parents have been so excited for this live show, and now what am I going to do? <laughs> um, so, uh, oh God. All right, but I, I like that because it was sincerely surprising, and it was escalating, and it was this moment of like unreliable narrator where you know she thinks it's so much more normal than... Then it is, but she, that's not an unreliable narrator. Uh, that's not an unreliable narrator. That's a super reliable narrator. She she has no doubt. Right. Everything she says is her truth. Right. Okay, you're right. 
All right. Well, then thank, thank you all for coming. And uh, pick up Visitation Street. Uh, that doesn't happen does in it, my Does book. it change the way you think about it? Yeah. Yeah? Well, does it change the way I think about that moment? About the book. That she's a super reliable narrator. No. I think that's the problem. Yeah. You think I she's agree. too reliable? Yeah. 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 Way too reliable. There's no nuance there. It's weird how it starts so so in media race in the middle of her like crazy mm-hmm. perversion. Like I kind of like that, you know, she's sort of this is the year it's gonna happen. And she's sort of built it all up to this year and she's in the middle of this frenzy and there's not a lot of explanation. I think if you're gonna write this kind of book, you don't wanna have a lot of like plot device. Just I mean, whether yeah. or not you like it, let's just get to the action, mm-hmm. not a lot of like hemming and hawing, you know. I, I kind of like that. Um, I agree. That was, that was. But I did sort of like your comment earlier about the Deus as Deus ex machina. God, I studied Greek. It's horrible. <laughs> You're in a sorority. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. Sigma Phi Epsilon. Building balance. Leaders. That sort of, you know, I think she should be called to task for this. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, and there's a specific thing that I'm referring to, which is someone discovers them. And then something happens to that person instantaneously. So there's, it's so convenient. Well, but that's actually in Lolita too. Remember? Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. They're they're discovered by Lolita's mother Mm -hmm. and then she runs into the street and is hit hit by by a car. car. Yeah. Um, so. Spoiler alert! Sorry. Yeah, so it's about halfway through the <laughs> Yeah, you're right. You're right. I forgot right. that. Yeah, no, I was reminded yeah. of that recently too. And I, yeah. I, yeah. Well, let let's bring up maybe a, a a larger, more interesting social topic here, which is something that I had to stop and ask my wife about because it's something I, you know, I I have to ask my wife about a lot of things. So I don't understand stuff. So, if this is a 26 year old man having sex with a 14 year old. Right girl it is you know where you're deriding this as a rape book again it's a bestseller it's a 26 year old woman having sex with a 14 year old boy and we haven't talked about it being abuse so where where does that fall um for us as as in society or just as readers you know i I, you know when i was a 15 year old boy and a 26 year old girl wanted to have sex with me it wouldn't have been possible because i would have already completed the task before we ever got there (laughs) Well, I think that Alyssa Nutting is very aware of that. And, okay, so what I think about that, I thought about that a lot while reading it, and I would still absolutely say this is a rape book. Of course. No question. Um, But she is aware of it because later they refer to someone else saying, like, well, it's not rape because, you know, look how hot she is. You know what I mean? So... Um, I'm trying not to spoil things for you guys really hard. <laughs> That's why I'm speaking so You guys so know hulkingly. how these cases go when a, a um, teacher has sex with a student. Yeah. Always works out well. But, um, you know, I think, I almost think that it's too much on the side of like, well, I wrote it about a woman, so isn't that like shocking and groundbreaking? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so for me, no. Because I think that's like, this is, I think that she wrote, went out, set out to write a book about a monster who's an attractive 26 year old woman. And for me, that's just not quite enough to be groundbreaking. Because I already think that that can exist. Right. Ryder, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I feel like it's, it's titillating for the sake of being titillating. And she's not actually exploring that issue. I would be more interested in that issue. But the trial, is like 30 seconds of right. the book. 30 seconds, like it's time. But yeah, you know, it's like you know, five pages of, and then we had this question, and then that question kind of goes away. You know, I, I was thinking too about the way, the, 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 I, to me, the, the key to seeing how basic 
this book is, is how basic it uses literature within the book. It's mm -hmm. like, because she's an English teacher, so there's all these literary references, but it's literally like, I'm trying to seduce a teenager. What book am I reading with my students? Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> the Scarlet like, Letter. I'm losing control, of, my, I'm losing control <laughs> of the student that I'm having sex with. What book are we reading now? Lord of the Flies. Yep. It's like so heavy-handed. It's just like one-to-one -one relationship of... Twilight know, does that too. Oh, I was reading Pride and Prejudice, and then I didn't like this book. Does it? Right. Exactly. It's, it's, it's such a basic approach to literature that it gives you a window into how Alyssa Nutting is reading books and how she's, you know, just going to sort of put this heavy hand of like, in case you didn't know, this is the point I'm trying I to make. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think we can presume that that's how Alyssa Nutting, <laughs> you know, reads books. I mean, you're you're conflating the narrator of that's the true. book with the that's author true. of the that's book. That's true. That's true. But, but there's clearly a, a relationship being made there and it's like you can't find any more nuanced examples of this or are you just going to go for the obvious? Well, and then there know. is just that, you know, eighth grade teachers have to probably assign certain books. So it's not right. like she could say, and then we're reading the corrections and, you know, <laughs> and, and make the make the comparison. But that that point is so on the nose, though, in the book that it was maddening to me. Yeah. 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 Um, and that, yeah. that I think it's disappointing because she could use those examples of literature that she's reading in class in, and take a far more interesting and nuanced way that, that the narrator looks at it versus how she's teaching to the students. She can be thinking about those things but saying different things to the class, and it would be more fulfilling for us as readers. Right, she just takes the sort of bottom line English teacher spiel right. about, yeah. you know. And there's an eighth grade English watch. teacher in the room who I think has a lot of opinions on this. We're gonna bring her up to the stage in a little bit and have her also go through all that. this. We're not gonna do <laughs> that. Brenda Julius, she, she's volunteered to go through line by line the book and explain everything from her point of view. Um, so my, my other big topic from this book that I was thinking about, and, and we sort of skated over the, the last one a little bit, but we'll get back to it in a second, um, is the idea of victimization. So these boys have been victimized, right, by this, uh, by this teacher, and this teacher has been victimized by a society that won't allow her to have sex with 14-year-olds. Horrible. Is Alyssa Nutting trying to make a, a statement? Is she trying to say something larger than this book with what she's talking no, about? Or is it just for titillation? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. If they were 16... Okay, but she, you know, like she deliberately chose a really like she, what? she no, she expanded the age difference so far yeah, that they're prepubescent basically. Mm -hmm. That that's I felt like that was a choice saying like it's not that she's accidentally falling for someone who looks like a man. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's what my point is, guys. <laughs> um, At long last, uh, thirty-seven episodes, we get Julia's point. But. Uh, what I mean is, like, she, it's so deliberate. It's so clear of, like, as the second they have, like, a hair on their chin, not interested. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think she's really aiming to make a monster out of this woman. Yeah, I mean, that's the line she drew in the sand. I mean, she likes 14-year-olds, and, you know, it's perverse. But, I mean, it's sort of a tricky argument to make is whether the book is sensational because that's just the book like right. that's what she picked you know it's sort of when you when you read something like the hunger games and you're like well isn't it convenient that that woman we're following turns out to be the woman who's like gonna save the world like right. I, I find like coincidence coincidences in young adult fiction infuriating because everything good and major happens to a certain character and that's just the main character yeah but Katniss is badass she's so hot <laughs> <laughs> let's let's not down talk Katniss. No, I love Katniss, but it's just like I get this moment where I'm like, well, isn't that convenient that she gets to do this? And isn't it convenient? And I feel like it's hard to take a look at a book like this and say, well, you know, is it 
sensational. No, that's just the story she's telling. You know, right. this yeah. is what she picked and these are the people she likes and whether or not you like it or not, that's totally different. But, you know, this happens to be the story she tells. Clearly it's sensationalistic. Mm. But, you know, it's that sort of like, you know, why do you write a book about any given day? Well, that why is this day different than all other days? Like, you know, that's yeah. the day we, of the we story. Eat unleavened bread. <laughs> totally. That's the second part of Tampa. <laughs> but, yeah, Tampa 2, Passover is a great, <laughs> great, great sequel. Uh, we were talking before too like uh, what I do admire about this book is that she was so like that she's making huge choices that she's not allowing the reader to say like oh well there's 17 and a half or whatever she's really going she's opening the barn door and like letting all the horses out she's just going crazy so my my overall feeling of this book is that uh I was at times sort of really uh, sickened and uncomfortable by it. I have to, I have to admit that there, yeah. were, there were points in the sex scenes where I was, as I was reading it in bed next to Scout and Minnie and my wife, and everyone was asleep and I was reading it, and I was like, oh, God. Yeah. There's a 26-year-old there's a woman having anal sex in my bed really? with a 14-year-old I boy. Was just, I, I was just rolling my eyes. It was just like, oh, okay. It just Did you felt skim? So, no, I, I just felt... No, no, he actually blew up the words and put them on the wall. <laughs> Slowly in a scroll. Um, he actually hired a team of players to come in and read it aloud to him. Oh, Jesus. So did, did you guys experience the same thing of sort of a, oh. No. No? It, I mean, I, I also read Fifty Shades of Grey last year or whenever that was a big thing, and I felt the same way. It's like, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't. But that's not taboo in the same right. way. Well, it is, the S&M thing. I mean, but the, it's, it's that, trying to be in the same yeah, sort of. This is truly taboo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. This is definitely more taboo than that. But you can't it, make room in your mind for it to be okay. anything but horrifying. Right. Right. Like you might have friends who do Fifty Shades of Grey stuff, but I hope you don't have friends who are doing this. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's why we invited everyone here today. Um, Ryder, we need to talk to you about your friends, some of whom are here. So uh, we should probably see if the audience has some questions or yeah. points they want to ask. Who, uh, who has something we haven't talked about in, uh, in Tampa or questions for the lovely and talented Ivy or any of us about anything? We're happy to take, uh, to take any questions about things. We'll give you guys a second. We'll give you guys a second to think. Oh, there's a hand right there. I, I would rather um, ask, about, ask Ivy some questions. Sure. Because I don't really want to. I'm not interested in that other book. <laughs> to be wow. perfectly honest. Uh, you know, we, we came here for the book. You don't and, want my tampon? You know. <laughs> oh, uh, hold on one second. I did not know this. On the review copy, it says, caution, explicit content. I've never seen that's that before. So uh, that that's so provocative. That is so, like, prov- oh my that's God. Just, yeah. That's like getting a two live crew cassette in right. 1993. Oh my God. That's He's so att- horny. But it's so calculating. That's what attracted I mean, me to so it. It's so calculating of the publisher to yes. put that on there. It, it's really savvy. It's, yeah. it's actually a really cool idea, but oh my God. And they're, they're accurate. There was explicit content. <laughs> it's so just I'm, a statement of fact. <laughs> yeah, statement of fact. I'm sorry, Anne, go ahead. That's okay. Um, well, so Ivy, as far as um, Visitation Street, this is your second novel. Um, how long did it take you to, from beginning to end, and how many revisions, and uh, was Todd involved at all? <laughs> <laughs> it would have been possible without Todd. Right. Yeah, we just sweat-filled room, Late and we just nights. typed back and forth together. Well, as a writer, I'm just saying I never know, you know, how many times can you edit? When is it enough? When when are you done? When do you just say I'm sick of the story? 
It's funny. I don't really ever think about it in terms of revisions. When I when I have it in a state where I'm going to show it to somebody is the state where I you know I probably revised it numerous times, but that's the first time I feel comfortable. And for me, that's I guess the first draft, but it's really the twentieth or something. Um, I worked in the book for on and off for three years. Um, it was tricky because I was in an MFA program while I did it, and there was a lot of other things I had to do there and and earn a living. So your first novel you wrote before the MFA yep. program. Yeah. Mm. I wrote it before, and that's why my novel is multi-perspective, because all the other students in my MFA program, at least in my class, were smart enough to write short stories. So every month, I had to turn in a new chapter of a novel, and I had no idea what I was doing. So I thought, oh, well, let me invent a new character, and we'll see what he's up to, <laughs> chapter one with him. <laughs> like, oh, next week, chapter one with somebody else. So um, at the end of the program, I had eight chapters following five characters. So each character had two chapters, and one had one. So it wasn't really coming together yet um it took you know and then I threw it out and I started over again and made everyone younger and everyone was like in their 30s and on drugs and then I made them like in their teens and just more generally lost and questioning life so you know after I finished it and submitted it I didn't have to do many revisions but probably up to that time I had one version and I threw it out entirely and I started over but you know, I didn't really... You didn't save anything from that original version? I saved a lot of stuff. Like, I would save description or moments, but, you know, the characters were different. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't, like, throw it out, like, delete it, but... Set it on fire. <laughs> I, I set my computer, on, my computer on fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I, I salvaged. I salvaged more than I thought, mm -hmm. but um, nothing plot-wise, more description. and. Cool. Other questions? You can ask anything. about anything you want. There's one right there in the middle. Hey guys, love your Hi. podcast. Thanks. Thank you. Um, so this is for Ivy. Um, I spent a lot of time in Brooklyn uh, the past couple of years, and uh, Cobble Hill mostly. That's uh, where I'm from. Awesome. Well, I was just wondering what you think is different about Red Hook than all of the areas around it. Like, what's distinct about Red Hook as compared to you know Carroll Gardens or Cobble Hill? Oh. Yeah, um, well, it's completely different because Red Hook, Robert Moses, when he built the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, um, decided to annex or ghettoize Red Hook from the rest of Brooklyn. So he cut it off. So Red Hook's surrounded by water on three sides, so it's a peninsula. And then when Robert Moses built the BQE, he basically made Red Hook inaccessible to the rest of Brooklyn. And there's very little public transportation. So when he did that, they tore down a lot of houses and they built pro housing projects. So people who lived there in like wood frame houses were suddenly put in housing projects. And then there was a old, uh, those were basically, you know, the black African-American and Latino community. And then the white dock workers were still able to live there, but then the docks closed. So it was just this community that was existing outside from the rest of the, the borough, inaccessible, no one was reaching it. So it just kind of existed without a lot of outside influence. It's really hard to get to. Um, you know, it is a mile and a half from the closest subway. So it's sort of like a time capsule. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of, you know, now there's an Ikea. So everyone always says, what about the Ikea? <laughs> <laughs> it's bad when center of civilization is your Ikea. <laughs> you can get a Swedish meatball now in Red Hook. And a slotted spoon. <laughs> <laughs> and a sofa that will never be comfortable. <laughs> totally. For $100. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
but you can't see the Ikea from the main drag. So it is just sort of preserved in amber. And it's, you know, if people live in Red Hook by, you know, birth or, you know, or by choice, and it's a very strange choice to live there because, you know, when I lived there, it would take me like an hour and a half to get to work in Manhattan. And, you know, cabs were expensive. So all your social life was there. You take the subway home at night and then you go out to the bar and that was it, you know. Did you know all this history about Red Hook before you started writing the book? I knew a lot. I mean, I lived there for three years while I was writing mm-hmm. it. I knew all about the Robert Moses stuff because there was, don't go to Red Hook in the 80s. You're going to get shot, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. Thank God I don't have a time machine. Exactly. <laughs> You're safe now. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I, I knew a lot. I knew tons about it. And then when I lived there, you know, everyone in Red Hook lays claim to the neighborhood on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Can I ask one more question? No. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, this There's is a line of people. <laughs> is there? No. Uh, uh, Worst book you ever read and why? Oh, God. And you may not choose Tampa. <laughs> oh, it's oh, no, not no, even no, close. No, no, not no, even no, close. No, no. But you're, close. you're welcome to choose um, authors that are long since dead and will not be um, offended at this point. Okay. Well, we've already uh, we'll, we'll have already offended Alyssa Nutting. I feel like you've actually it. said on the podcast this is the worst book I've ever read, Todd. What I, was that about? I think Flowers in the Attic was the Flowers worst book the I've attic. ever that read. That might be the highest for me too. That yeah. is truly it's terrible. It, it's just it's just a hor- It's horribly written. It's a, it's a horrible story. It yeah. just I, I said this on the show. I, I think when you recorded, I I thought that I had read it completely when I was eleven or twelve when my sisters were reading it, but I must have only read the sex scenes because when I read it. From beginning to end, it was it was like a prostate examination while being hit in the head and yelled at by my mother. It was yeah. like the worst. It's so bad. It's horrible. And a bunch of our fans have told us they're it's being made into a TV a show, yes. a lifetime, a movie. lifetime movie. But it's already yeah. been a movie before. But they got an I've amazing seen the movie. cast. It's like who's Jennifer it? Ellen Jason Barkin. Lee. It's like it's an amazing cast. Ellen yeah. Barkin. I, I swear to God, Ellen Barkin. Yes, she's playing the grandmother. It'll it's, be pretty good. It's I mean, be... right? No. Yeah, no. you'll watch it. Oh, I will watch it. <laughs> so Those are two totally separate yeah. questions. How dare you? Of course I will watch it. Yeah. I will, I will TiVo the shit out of that. <laughs> so that might be the worst book God. I've ever read. There, there are, I mean, there's, it's, I can't, there's books that I've reviewed that were horrible. There was one time I reviewed a book written by an ex-pimp on his love advice on how to keep a lady. And the it was game? called like, no, it was called, it's, this guy was like an actual pimp. He wasn't Neil Strauss. His name was like Big Boom. And it was Big Boom's Guide to Love or something crazy like that. You have it downstairs? It sounds kind of genius. And actually. I read it and I was like, I'm literally reading a book written by a pimp about how to keep your bitches correct, yo. And I'm just and, you but, know, that, but that's not even literature. That's just so like, that's a curiosity. I had a job in New York where I sold books like on a street corner. and Was this before or after the commie dog walking business? Simultaneous. Okay. And uh, I, by the, for this awesome company called Mobile Libras, and I would like go around with a little suitcase I to events Mobile like Libras. this. Yes. Aren't they awesome? Yeah. Um, so I was one of their people and I went to like, or I didn't work this event, but somebody told me they were standing on a street selling a book with a a prior pimp, and I wonder if it was him. Think, uh, it was, and it was advice. I I'm think sure Boom it was. worked in the Greater Atlanta area, as I recall. <laughs> that was his. Okay, maybe not. I guess it's all sub I mean, we genre. Can, we can probably have someone run downstairs and get Big Boom's guide to pimp and hose, and, <laughs> and keeping your love life correct. He had some fantastic advice. So you took exception. Uh, you took exception to the book or the advice. Well, the advice was solid. Okay. Um, so it wasn't. The way it was presented? Yeah. It was just the art. The, the font face was dreadful. It was just, it was a bad book in general. But 
I, I can't think of a book that I've read in, in like the last 20 years that I've hated more than Flowers in the Attic. Or, wow. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't even have to read it. I just had to watch the, uh, the, um, mini-series. the miniseries. But from what I understand from the miniseries, I know there's at least one fan in the room. Pillars of the Earth sound like what the worst book I would have ever read. But I fortunately, I didn't have to worse. read Flowers it. Flowers in the Attic is way worse. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Pillars of the Earth is just long. And so if you're, if you're not enjoying <laughs> it, it's, it's a slog. Yeah. Ryder, what's your what's your worst book? I, I'm going to say Flowers in the Attic. I think that really is because on a sentence level, it's awful. Yeah. On a plot level, it's so weird and offensive. I mean, there's just everything about it is is horrible. <laughs> it's and and I guess also it's 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 even worse because it was so popular, you know, and that everybody has kind of fond memories of it for some reason, and and that it inserted itself into you know American 11 year old girl consciousness yeah, is just so weird. disturbing yeah. to me. So that's yeah. What, yeah. So it kind of wins on every level. Well, and that is I have a super uncreative answer. Um, which is, I think the worst books I've ever read are the, the Twilight Saga. They're unreadable. But you read all of them. But I read them all. <laughs> what? <laughs> so what does that say? What does that I, say? That's read, a lot of pages. Well, eh, so when I know I'm really hating a book is when I start skimming out of anger. It's like hate watching with like the fast forward on the TiVo or whatever. It's a you lot know. of skimming. It's like a 900 page book. Guys, okay, go open it. The font is huge. The margins are huger. Each chapter is five pages long, and there's like this much blank space. They're not as long as they look. They try to be impressive and saga and epic-like, but they are really, really, really flimsy, and they're horrible. Right, guys? (laughs) How many of you have read them? Oh, you people make me fucking sick. Ivy, what's your worst book? Well, wait, I want to, oh, one second. You can have one more second. The reason I read them is that I wanted to participate in the cultural conversation. And I think this is something that we do on our podcast a lot. Is like, if you want to really engage in a criticism of Twilight and you want to take it down, you got to go, you got to go all the way in. You know what I mean? I think it is very unfair and bullshitty when people watch the mini series of a book. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? And then say the book is How bad. So dare you? with Pillars of the Earth, I also listen. I trust your judgment. <laughs> well, yeah. Or so okay, you have an expert source or you yourself want to go detail by detail and explain to people why it's bad because if we don't educate ourselves, then we have to assume That's that it's That's what the Nazis did to the say. Jews, right? <laughs> they educated. <laughs> that did not land. No. no. <laughs> Goldberg, for the people, is my last name. Not just making anti-Semitic jokes. We've had jokes the Rosenbergs. Here. We've had yeah. everybody. We have, we have Roald Dahl here. Fancy oh, yeah. anti-Semite. Do you guys have any more questions for us? Yeah, there's one right. There's two. There's one back there. There's one right here. We'll go to this one first because we'll get you guys. Her friend Mackenzie helped us. So Ivy, uh, if only one person could read your book, who would you want that to be? Ooh, great question. Ooh, Gosh. Michael. I have no idea. Lavar Burton. Jonathan. What? A- <laughs> Take a look. VC Andrews? <laughs> what about Jonathan Leatham? Wouldn't oh, he I would love, well, yeah. I mean, that's my standard answer to anything. But yeah, I'd love Jonathan Leatham to read my book. Yeah. He didn't want to blurb it, so he better goddamn read it. <laughs> we can drive it out to Pomona tonight. Totally, let's go. Just drop it at his house. That's a good question. Thank Jonathan you. Leatham. He better right. read it. There was one in the back there. The mic is coming to you. Don't say a word. Take a look Hello in a book. Again. Oh. Hello. Hi. Good to see you guys. Um, What's your name? Megan. Hi, Megan. We forgot to ask your name. What was your name? Jillian. Thanks, Jillian, for coming. Hi, Megan. Hey, I'll ask you a Tampa question because I don't want your efforts to have been in vain. Thank you. Um, I haven't read it. I read all around it to avoid reading it, but still to know about it. 
Wait, what do you mean? You're like, looked at the negative space? <laughs> she read other people's thoughts about she it. She read a book okay, called okay. Sarasota and one called St. Pete. I'm coming at it kind of sideways, you know. Um, but I did read an interview with Alyssa Nutting, and she said uh, her intention in writing it was to sort of address the dichotomy in popular culture with, you know, how we treat male sex offenders versus female sex offenders. And knowing that, does that change your opinion about it at all, knowing that that was her, her primary goal? It's an interesting question because um, if, I, I, I totally admire that goal. I think that's valid, but that goal isn't paid out right. in this book. Yeah. Because what happens to her is what happens to, without giving it away, to, she doesn't really, you know, pay for her sins. And whether or not that's a good ending or whether you like it or not, if that's her motivation for writing the book, she doesn't address that problem in the denouement. And she doesn't go deep enough. No. You know, yeah. I, I think that's the thing is that, I mean, that's a great, I mean, it's sort of the question I, I asked of you guys, mm -hmm. the, the larger societal question. If you're going to ask that question, man, you gotta, you got to swing for the fences on it, you know? Yeah. And I think she comes close with that line about, oh, my God, they're going to see the pervert in me. But then she doesn't. She doesn't go further well, with it. They and don't see the pervert. No, her. they never see the pervert. Yeah, I mean, I think that it just. Yeah, I mean, that's what I thought the whole time. It's like this is what she thinks she's doing. But if you're going to do that, you have to do that so well. You know, it's not enough to that. That just makes it seem like well, the point of me writing this was some social message, which I think is never a good way to start writing a book because then you're not going to go deep enough uh, into the character. Like, sorry to keep going back to it, but. In Lolita, it's full of nuance because it's saying, look at the sex offender and look at the like complexities with which he is struggling. You know, this woman is not struggling. She is just all in. It's she's it's a caricature, and I would like be very interested to know what a what a sex offender would you know think. would actually think. There was that yeah. there was a great movie. Um, that it's so great I can't remember the title of it. Uh, where Kevin Bacon is a pedophile. The woodcutter, yeah. yeah, it was the, the, woodsman. the woodsman, the woodsman, which I thought really did that particularly well. But you know, it's it's yeah. a different medium, of course. Yeah. I mean, I would say the reason she wrote this book is because it must have been a whole lot of fun and really interesting and kind of cool to write this book. You know, to really when I read an interview with her this morning in Publishers Weekly, and she said, you know, after writing for like eight hours, she like couldn't speak to her husband because she was so entrenched in this mind and. It would just be fun to have, not, not fun, because, but yeah, like, let's, yeah, let's go ahead. Okay, okay, okay. I have to keep go it, now. It. He's, he's in a director's chair, he can't down. move. Shit, okay. But, but like, you know, right, you don't want to write about larger social themes. You like, own it. You wrote it because this is like, well, and you wrote kind a book a about larger social themes, you know, whether or not you did it intentionally. No, that's but what yeah. That's but what I don't think, I, I don't think, uh, Julia's right. I don't think you ever want to start exactly. from a position of, let me have a thematic and then yeah. let me, you know, push that agenda through my characters. That that comes later. You're fucked. I mean, that's the worst way to start. Because theme, and this is something I know, theme I, is for those of you dangerous. that are students or former students of mine that are in the room, I, I always say no one walks into a bookstore looking for a book with a great theme. You know, they, they want a great story. They want a great plot. They don't care about the theme because what they think is the theme is different than what you thought was the theme. Here's how I would define this book. This is a book about theme masking as a book about character. With Amos. Well put. Slow wow. Slow Ladies and gentlemen. Snapping also. But really, it's a character that's embodying a theme and the character is lost because the theme it's is It's interesting too that you, I mean, 
it's like American Psycho is a whole lot of fun, and you, you could read this, you know, depending whether you like it or not, as a whole lot of fun. You know, she's buying nice clothes, she's putting on her cream, she's fucking the boys, you know? <laughs> like, it's cool. fun, but then, like, there is this implication, there's, I mean, this is not implication, there is this, like, you know, impetus to, like, graft on larger social meaning, and maybe there just isn't any. Right. Right. That's maybe, a good point. Maybe it's better that way. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Great point. All right. Well, I think that's a good note for us to wrap things up on. Thank you all for yeah, coming thank so, you. Much thank you guys so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you for Ivy Pakoda coming out and talking with us and suggesting a little bit of smut for us to read. <laughs> it was my pleasure. <laughs> and thank you to our fine friends here at Barnes & Noble for yeah, hosting Barnes us this evening. Sorry about Round the you got applause. mail comment. <laughs> and... Ivy's book is for sale right here, and she'd be happy to sign as many copies as you like for the upcoming holidays. Great for Hanukkah, great for Christmas, Rosh Ramadan, Rosh Hashanah, yeah. any, any Yom holiday Kippur. coming up. And Ryder and Julia and myself will be happy to sit here and chat with you okay, guys. Okay, so as long and as you like. the way that we always end in the podcast is Ryder tells us three, two, one, stop, and that's when we're supposed to stop recording. Right. So uh, Greg is totally just taking a picture and not ready to stop yeah, recording. Greg, we're so. going to need you to... Greg, we're going to go in three, two, two one, stop. stop. And that's it for the first live literary disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss how I spent my summer vacation essays. We'll be reading Once More to the Lake by E.B. White and a supposedly fun thing I'll Never Do Again by David Foster Wallace. Check in on the Finnegan's Wake Up Challenge on our Goodreads page. Follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco and like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash literary disco. Thanks for listening.